you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Ruby Story. This week, we're talking to Noah Gibbs. Noah, do you want to say hi? Hi. It's good to, good to talk to everybody. Yeah, we haven't had you on for a while. We had you on in 2015. We talked about deployments in episode 199 and rebuilding rails in episode 207. Yeah. Well, uh, rebuilding rails is still uh, still a fun thing. I still sell copies of that. I still talk to people about it. You know, it's always nice seeing people get into frameworks and build it themselves. Mm-hmm. So much about frameworks, the the problems are that people either trust the framework too much or they expect it to do everything. And when you realize a framework is just a big library and right. it's okay to dig in and change it yourself, you know, so so much gets easier. And so yeah, you know, rebuilding Rails is still a, still a lovely thing, and I'm still always happy to talk to people about that. If you see me at a conference, grab me. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And it sounds like you've been doing some other interesting things that we'll probably dig into a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, I'm working for Appfolio these days as their Ruby fellow, and so I do a lot of uh, measuring Ruby performance, writing about Ruby performance. Uh, some of the folks, especially people that read Ruby Weekly every week, have probably seen a bunch of my big posts on their blog about Ruby performance with a lot of graphs. So, yeah. Nice. We'll have to get you on Ruby Rogues to talk about it. Sounds good to me. Anytime. So what does that folio do before we uh, dive into your story? Sure. Uh, if you have a big building that you rent out to a lot of people, Appfolio mm-hmm. is probably already familiar to you. It's a, it's a piece of property management software for that. Uh, the company does that. It does legal signing. It does a bunch of different things. Uh, I'll say that what I do for Appfolio is pretty much entirely working on Ruby and open source stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't really work on their core line of business. Uh, gotcha. All right, cool. Well, let's let's dive into your story. Let's find out who Noah Gibbs is. Let's Let's back up to when you first got into code. How did you get into programming? Well, uh, there were a couple of things. I've, I've actually been fascinated by computers since before I'd ever touched one. I used to, to take these little castle blocks, uh, plastic ones, that we probably all had things kind of like them, mm-hmm. and, and make little pretend computers when I was too, too tiny to have ever seen anything like a real computer. Uh, but the way I actually got into programming was in my third grade class, they got a, uh, an Apple II, and they had us draw out on graph paper using, uh, we'd call it ASCII art now, but, you know, using letters, we'd draw on graph paper, these little pictures, and then we uh, programmed, kind of, the word kind of belongs in quotes there, but we did, you know, 10 print, and then the first line, and we'd carefully type the first line, and you had the people who, oh, I had to hit the space bar for all the blank spaces, I mean, I I, I was one of those too, Um, (laughs) 
but that was, you know, that was wonderful. That was, uh, that was a lot of fun. And so my aunt wound up getting an, an Apple IIc not long after that. And I begged and I begged and I begged my parents. It took about two more years after uh-huh. that. We eventually wound up getting an Apple IIe at home. And I was, I was so disappointed that graphics programming didn't really work like that. And even if you put together the graph paper thing, you had to, uh, you had to use a whole other, uh, I, these days I suppose I'd say a whole other interface. But at the time, of course, I didn't have any idea what I was doing. I was in Texas in the middle of nowhere. So I've got to say, as tools for learning programming go, nothing beats complete boredom and having <laughs> to look at for years. <laughs> I'm a big fan of that. I've got to say that 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 has that has been better than any other technique I know. Awesome. So, uh, how did you get from there to writing professional Ruby code? Uh, so I didn't start in Ruby. Right. Uh, I actually went to college for computers at Carnegie Mellon, and uh, mm-hmm. I've done a bunch of stuff before that. You know, I, I was I, I was one of the first people where I was to get a compiler, and I. Uh, didn't know what it was. I, I used the phrase C assembler when I was trying to get it, which confused everybody because I knew assemblers were a thing that would turn assembly code that you typed into uh-huh. something the computer could run, but I didn't didn't know the word compiler for that. Anyway, so after after a bunch of that and doing it myself, I went off to college and uh, got a got a full time job doing C code after that. And I oh. 15 years, I think, I spent writing in you know, C and C++ and, and other, other things that were standard at the time professionally. So yeah, I, at some point, got to that frustrated bit where you realize you can write code really well, and there's not much you can show people that's any good or that's even a little bit interesting. And like the good traditional systems programmer that I was, I sat down and I specced what I'd want to do to have a reasonable delivery of that. And writing installers separately for Windows and Linux and all that is terrible. It's so, so bad. I mean, it still is. It's better than it was, but it's so bad. Uh, And, you know, just getting C programs so people can use them, shipping them to people is really hard. And so eventually, having written what I wanted to do with this, I sat down and I looked at it and I looked at it. I realized I'd spec mostly a web browser. Now... (laughs) I was one of those old C systems programmers where, you know, you say web browser and I sort of do the eh, 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 kids these days. But I realized what I'd spec was a web browser. And so I'd looked a few times into web programming because I look mm-hmm. into every kind of programming when I hear about it. And I sort of looked at it and gone, well, this is all complete crap. I, this is this is all terrible stuff. You know, early PHP stuff and, and even before that, ugly, ugly stuff. And, you know, the third or the fourth time I went and I looked at web programming, I found the Ruby on Rails 15-minute blog tutorial. And I looked at it. And I said, Wow. This is not horrible. This is the first web programming of any kind I've ever seen that is not horrible. And I looked at it, and I realized that it was using a database for the back end. And I'd successfully managed to avoid through a 15-year mm-hmm. career learning anything about databases. And so I looked at that, and I realized I was going to have to learn database stuff. And I gave a big sigh. And I realized it was delivering it all in HTML. And I gave another big sigh. <laughs> I, looked at it and I realized I was going to have to learn at least a little bit of CSS. And that almost put me off it completely. <laughs> but so... For about the next two years, I spent all my spare time sitting on my couch, writing little Rails apps and debugging little Rails apps and teaching myself HTML and teaching myself CSS and teaching myself databases. And by the end of that, I I heard about meetups, and meetups were a new thing to me. I was a C programmer. I'd heard about meetups, and I thought, huh, let's, I just, I don't feel like I'm really a a web guy. I don't know if I can go to a Ruby meetup. This, this, this. And by the end of the two years, I'd convinced myself that these guys all must be much, much, much smarter than I was because I'd you know, figured out JavaScript, but not enough to get it to reliably do what I wanted. And I'd figured out some CSS. But it was, a lot of it was still mysterious to me. And databases, I mean, man, databases. 
whatever they were doing. It wasn't what I was used to doing. And so by the end of the two years, I'd convinced myself that these web guys were a lot smarter than I was, but I still wanted to do what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And so I went around with, with more than 10 years of systems programming experience on my resume. And let me, let me tell you a, a sales pitch not to use if you try and go get a job. <laughs> I've been doing this a long time. I've been doing this more than 10 years. So I'm not cheap. You're going to have to pay me a lot of money. But I've never done any of the stuff that you do. And I'm only sort of confident in it. Hire me? <laughs> I love it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, can, I can tell you about how to switch careers. But I'll say the way I did it wasn't, wasn't maybe the best possible way you could do it. Anyway, so uh, it, was, it was interesting. I, I eventually had a company called OnSite, uh, a different uh-huh property management company, actually. They're, they're still doing their thing. They're great guys. Uh, but they were willing to give me a chance in a Java and JRuby shop. Now, Java was another thing I'd managed to avoid for a long career, <laughs> but I've done a little bit, and I could, I could sort of do it. And um, anyway, it, it worked out okay. It worked out all right. But I basically joined as their Ruby guru as my first Ruby job. <laughs> so that was... Uh, that was kind of neat. I, I've pretty much only had Ruby jobs where I was kind of the Ruby guy telling other people how mm-hmm. to do it, right? Uh, which was, again, weird. Uh, but I finally made it to some meetups. I finally talked to some more Ruby programmers. And I finally realized that, oh, yeah, it's, it's not that they're all vastly smarter than me. It's that this is so big, nobody knows very much of it. Right. You have a number of specialists. And, you know, it's a little like if you looked at C stuff and you went, wow, these people must all be wizards because they understand perfectly where every bit goes in all places everywhere in the process. And the answer is no, no, we don't. But, it, yeah. Uh, and so obviously meetups and conferences and stuff have been very good to me afterwards. It was just, you know, weird getting there and realizing that I was a lot more competent than I thought I was because two, two years of spare time will teach you some things, uh, not everything, but some things. Uh, yeah. And so I went from long, but completely separate career doing the C stuff and the systems programming to deciding Ruby and web programming were going to be, you know, the next big thing. And that's been great. I mean, I got into Ruby at the right time. That's been Oh man, how many years ago now? Like 2002 or something. So I mean, it was a great time to. Yep. No, no, it wasn't that long ago. It must have been like 2008. Anyway, but but uh, Ruby's been great to me. Rails was not new, new, but still not well known. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I remember Rails 1.2. That was that was just being phased out in favor of 2.0 when I uh, when I okay. learned it. And so, yeah, it was a it was a fabulous time to be uh, to be writing Ruby. It was, a, it was a good time to be looking for a job, and a few years later was an even better time to be looking for a job with a few years of experience. Yeah. So I'm curious, what what was it about Ruby that really got you excited? Then, what what made you decide, okay, this is the direction I want to go in, as opposed to staying with something like C and systems programming, which was familiar and yeah. made you happy. Oh, very much so. Ruby was the first programming language where when there was a particular thing that was boilerplate or stupid or you wrote it the same way every time, they just took it out completely. Mm -hmm. Ruby was the first time I looked at a language and I went, wow, there's almost nothing here that isn't about the specific thing I'm trying to do. It took me years to get into a mindset where if I was grinding along doing something I was already familiar with, that was Mm -hmm. a bad thing and I should stop. Right. That any time I was doing a repetitive thing I was used to, the computer should be doing that. Right. It was a lot like some of the common list people that I worked with really early, like in my part-time jobs in college. And they never really explained to me. I mean, I was a C programmer, and they never really explained to me you know, what that meant. They, not, not that they tried that hard, but the list understanding that if there's something you're doing and it's a repetitive task and you've done things like it before, stop. That's, that's what a tool should be doing. 
uh-huh. really took me until Ruby to understand. <laughs> but once I understood that, that combined with I was trying to get people to use my stuff was enough to get me to hate all of the technique for its own sake that I'd spent my entire career on up to that point. Right. You know, so much about systems programming where there's beautiful feeling of control, where you control everything all the way down to the bits. But it takes forever to do anything. And so if what you're doing is programming for the sake of the programming, it's very satisfying. And if what you're doing is trying to make a useful application that someone can actually do something interesting with, mm-hmm. suddenly it all becomes frustrating. And so Ruby happened along with that shift in mindset for me where I got frustrated about everything taking too long and, and not being able to deliver apps people could use. Uh, I worked at uh, mobile mobile companies for a while. Like uh, I worked for Palm. I worked for Access, which bought Palm, Palm Source. Um, so I worked on like, Palm OS stuff, mm-hmm. worked on some cell phone stuff, worked on several things like that, um, among others. And um, one of the things about building deep device software is very often you'll spend years building a thing and then they'll get it done. They'll turn around, they'll try to sell it and no one will buy it. <laughs> like the rest of the I worked on and, and Alp, the Access Linux platform, which was, uh-huh. was sort of a, a Linux-based successor to Palm OS, nobody really ever used them. Some of the same people went on to build WebOS, which was bought by LG and then bought by HP. And mm-hmm. so, some of your, your listeners out there feel fond feelings toward WebOS, but it didn't get a lot of success. But mostly you build the operating system, and if it doesn't turn out to be a giant hit, there's a pretty good chance no one will ever use it. Right. And me a number of years of frustration with that and with similar things where I'd build this embedded deep system software that took forever to make and it just never turned out to be useful to anybody. And so a lot of what happened to me with Ruby was the combination of this shift to I'll build something people will use with I'm doing it myself. I write it. And once I get the hang of it, I can have it out and running, you know, two days, three days later. It's on a website and someone mm-hmm. can use it. And eventually, like, you know, 10 minutes later, but I came from C, like two days, three days later was already a, a pretty major mind shift. Mind right. shift. <laughs> and so being able to build stuff myself and to build most of it and to be able to read the code and be able to get it out there, just, you know, this, this shift to programming makes things people use, including things that I use. Mm-hmm was really what happened with me with Ruby. And I think that's still absolutely Ruby's strongest suit. There are not many languages as good at that as Ruby is. And if you're doing web stuff, there's no other language that's anywhere close to as good as that for Ruby. And yeah. so... I, yeah. I, I completely agree. And just to add a few uh, anecdotal experiences from my own life to that, I was a freelancer for a long time doing Rails apps. And one of my frustrations was that I would spend months working on a system for a company. And yeah, I can tell you that I think one of those systems is actually still out there and it's not widely used at all. I I did some work for a a local uh, book company that publishes LDS or Mormon books and artwork and things like that based here in Salt Lake City. And I, I wrote a whole system that did a bunch of stuff on EPUBs. And I went to the local meetup about a year after I had written it and just kind of casually asked one of the developers there, how, you know, so, so how's it working? And the response was, oh, we haven't even had time to plug that in. Oh. And I'm like, you, you spent thousands of dollars having me write that. And yeah. yeah. And so just, just seeing, hey, you know, I can write something and I can get it out there for people to use is, is a big, big thing. And I'm currently working on a system for podcasters that will help them manage podcasts. And it's, 
it's wonderful because I can sit down and in a couple of hours I can add something onto it that I need or rework some part of the system and put it right back up. And it's gotten to the point now where I have, she was my executive assistant and I've, I've kind of made her the chief bottle washer and producer of the content. And so she, she manages a lot of that. I still do some of it because I still host the shows. But beyond that, beyond uploading the, the media, you know, she handles a lot of the rest of the things after that. And she can now use the software, right? And she's not a software person. And that's the yeah. big payoff there. Yeah, it's making stuff for people that don't have to be programmers mm -hmm. themselves is hard, but really gratifying when it works out. Yeah. You know, kind of the same way that doing stuff for your own non-software needs, you know, the first, yep. the first time that works out and, and your thing actually makes your life better. It's kind of magic. Yep. And I, I'm now to the point where she's like, wait a minute, this is wrong. <laughs> awesome. and, and then it's like, no, it's right. It's just that my UI sucks. <laughs> you know? So, so you, you can work through those things. And yeah, I, I, I totally get where you're coming from on this stuff because that's kind of the world I'm living in these days. Yeah. Well, I mean, more and more everybody should be, right? Mm -hmm. We we had the time when software made a bunch of impossible stuff possible. And that's cool. That's yep. wonderful. But like the possible stuff that people want has mostly been made possible. And so now the question is, how can software make life better for people? Right. And so, so many of these modern st startups that are less make something possible startups and more make something easy startups, and then we just need to find out what things people will pay to make easy, is about taking that software thing. And it's done the trick, right? Like it's yeah. done the early tricks and it's possible. Now we have to turn it into something that doesn't, you know, that isn't utterly horrible to use. And that is a big project. I mean, I think that's going to be a much bigger project than making the impossible stuff possible, really. Yep. Yeah. It's understandable. That's, that's how everything works. First you make impossible stuff possible, and then you spend the next 2,000 years, you know, making it not suck. Yep. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. So you've done a lot of things out there in the Ruby community that people, in my opinion, should be somewhat aware of. You know, the rebuilding Rails. Um, I think you've put a bunch of stuff out about uh, DevOps and deployment, if I'm remembering yep. right. You know, you, you mentioned before the show that you're working on Ruby performance stuff. Uh, yep. Do you want to talk briefly about all of those different things and any other projects that I didn't mention that you're particularly excited about or proud of? Uh, well, those are the those are the really big ones. The, I mean, I've done a bunch of other things kind of under those umbrellas, but those are those are definitely the areas people would be likely to know about. So, uh, rebuilding Rails, you and I talked a little bit about right at the beginning, and it's still one of the things I'm proudest of because. I know we hate the word legacy in software, but a lot of a good piece of software's effect is about its legacy in the same way that small talk was only used so much, you know, moment by moment for right. actual software systems. But, oh, man, you know, such a lot of systems, including Ruby, took a lot of the best parts of small talk and used it. And so a lot of what Ruby's going to do well long term, if it succeeds, is to influence how everybody else does it. You know, it's wonderful to see other folks take little bits of rails here and there because it may reduce mm -hmm. our comparative advantage a little bit. But man, everybody should be doing it that way. We don't we don't need to live in a in a little garden of Eden all by ourselves where we have all the good stuff. These things should spread. And so what I'm curious about is what the next really good framework is going to be like for what Rails does. And I don't think we've I don't think there is one yet. I don't think it's happened yet. Mm -hmm. And so things like rebuilding Rails, where we go out and we kind of spread the word, this is what Rails does really well. It's not a hard trick, you should steal it, I think is important work. And I think there should be a lot more of that kind of thing. There is. I mean, I'm not right. the only one doing it. There's a lot of that kind of thing, but I think we can still use more. Plus, of course, it's always fun to talk to the kind of people that build frameworks. Like if you're the kind of developer that wants to sit down and build a framework, I want to talk to you. It'll be a good 
conversation. I'd love to wrap me at a conference. But yeah, and so there's been a lot of talk about that because that's kind of what do I think the best ideas in Rails are? How do you do them? And I've gotten a lot of conference talks and meetup talks and stuff like that, blog posts and you know, mm-hmm. things like that. The, the DevOps and deployment stuff started from the same place. Uh, and it was, it was a wonderful education for me. I'm not sure how much other people got out of it, just realizing how powerful uh, an integrated system like Rails, where everything is chosen well and curated well, how much easier that is to teach and to mm-hmm. help people understand than something like deployment, where more than any other area I've worked in, everybody wants it their own way. Everybody wants it tweaked to their yep. specific circumstances. They don't actually care whether the things they choose make sense to choose together. It's not that there are three or four competing sort of major philosophies. It's mm-hmm. that everything is a complete hash. You know, it's a coleslaw of different tools. Right. And it's they picked up most recently. That's not to say there aren't good deployment systems out there, but your average deployment system is really bad. I wouldn't quite <laughs> say your average deployment system is worse than just running a shell script by SSH, but I'm not sure I'm wrong about that. It's it's shockingly competitive. B- b- yeah, anyway. Uh, but yeah, there's still a lot of good stuff to be said about what the deployment tools are and what they do. And the other thing there is just it's so different working in an area like Rails where some people pick it up because they love it. I pick it up because I love it. Uh-huh. I'd sit and build Rails apps even if they didn't do anything useful. And, you know, it's a wonderful environment. And something like deployment that almost everybody who comes to it comes to it from a place of hate and wishing that they could do none of it at all. Right. Very few people come to deployment saying, I just I love deployment. I want to live here. <laughs> um, and it's not just that the tools are bad. Like with a good setup where, where you do all of those things, still almost nobody comes to it from uh, from a love of it. Right. Uh, and it's a whole other world. Like do, doing doing something there is is just a whole other thing. Uh, I think we're going to find a small number of deployment tools that win completely, not because they'll be good. I, good is is so hard in that world, but because eventually, I think we'll all collectively get tired of fighting it for for almost no additional benefit. Uh-huh. Uh, it's just going to take a few more years or a lot more years. Hard to say. Uh, anyway, but yeah, so deployment stuff. I've done a, I've done a deployment class. I've, I've put together some tools for that. I'll say that that is not a space that really needs more tools. I feel I, I feel a certain amount of regret that what I did was to try building more tools there. And I'm not saying don't build your own deployment tools. I'm saying if you do, maybe you don't need to like go out and evangelize them because mostly when you build more tools, you're going to discover you're adding problems. It's like if you make your own standard. It's not that you should never write your own standard. Man, uh-huh. if you've got a thing you care about, sit down and write a standard for it. But maybe don't push your standard. Write the standard to learn. <laughs> it's like writing your own linked list algorithms. Like, right. There's a lot to learn there. And we probably don't need another one actually in the wild. But write it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and so, yeah, and then more, the, the recent stuff, the last, I'll oh, call it two years, uh, a lot of what I've been doing is building a benchmark called Rails Ruby Bench. So one of the historical problems that the Ruby core team used to have is they're not web guys. I mean, they're right. still not. They're, they're wonderful programmers. They're amazing programmers. But it's a bunch of people that work on a good language interpreter. And so they're language interpreter guys. And so they often don't have a great feel for what some of those changes do to a large web app because that's not what they do day in right. day out. Uh, and so Rails Ruby Bench is a benchmark I put together that uses Discourse. Uh, Discourse is open source Rails forum software. But it's a great example of a medium-sized open source Rails app. And it generates a bunch of pseudo-random HTTP requests. It basically simulates a bunch of user activity. And it runs the equivalent of doing many thousands of users, many, many, many requests to see how fast a particular Ruby configuration can make Rails run that. So it's using Rails as a benchmark for Ruby, but it's specifically using Rails setup that's a lot like what a lot of startups do with their you know, mid to high traffic, medium-sized Rails apps. Mm-hmm. 
And so a lot of the questions, okay, this is a fun optimization, but what does it do for Rails? What does it do in a concurrent environment? What, is, what does it do in real life? There hasn't been a great answer for that. And while there's lots of room for other ideas of what counts as real life, you know, Rails Ruby Bench is not the only possible answer there. I think it's a good answer, and I think nobody else has tried hard before that. I, we could use absolutely more answers to that. Uh-huh. It's a great day talk on all the different ways he thinks Ruby 3 by 3 should be measured. And Rails Ruby Bench is basically one of his good ideas turned into a benchmark that I run constantly. And so this long series of uh, performance posts that I do on the Appfolio Engineering blog that you can can see in uh, Ruby Weekly are pretty much take this tool that I've built, this benchmark, and what does it do for this version of Ruby versus this version of Ruby? What does Mm -hmm. it do if you're not JIT? How much of that time is garbage collection versus raw time? What if you check with more processes and fewer requests per process? How much of that is warm-up time? You know, all these things that with a a benchmark like that, you you can sit down and measure. Love it. Absolutely love it. And yeah, a lot of people are out there doing this kind of work in Rails. And so since it's by far the largest, I guess, tenant in Ruby. Well, that's interesting. I don't know if you saw the How is Ruby Different in Japan post that went around recently. Oh, really? But I'll say that that's a, that's a very English-speaking centered point of view. Okay. I share it with you, but it's a very English-speaking centered point of view. Fair enough. Uh, the English-speaking world... Ruby and Rails fortunes have absolutely risen and fallen together. It's not that everything we do is Rails, but man, Rails is central. And it's such a big part of what we do. And when Rails goes up, Ruby goes up and vice versa. And Japan is cheerfully ticking along doing their own thing. And the curves look completely different there. They use MRuby, the the embedded variety. They use Ruby, even regular Ruby for automated stuff. There is some web stuff, but Rails isn't as big there. I mean, they they do a bunch of stuff, but Rails is not the the force of nature in in their Ruby world that it is here. They do a whole bunch of other stuff. And similarly, if you look at their Ruby meetups and stuff, they usually call them Ruby Kaigi because, you know, Mm-hmm. But in addition to the big one, we just call Ruby Kagi, you know, the national one that happens once a year. Right. Uh, they have a bunch of regional ones that go on all the time. And some of those have been going on for 10 years, and they have oh, six or eight of them at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ruby is huge in Japan, and it's just a whole other world. They do different things with it, their, their outlook's different, and it doesn't rise and fall with Rails in the same way. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Whole other world. It's neat. It's a culture within a culture. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Interesting. So, what are you working on now? Well, so my day job is for Appfolio and doing this Ruby performance stuff. Uh, that that is what I do, you know, nine to five. What I'm doing in addition to that is, uh, you know, we all have our side projects. Uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been learning Parslet, which is a parsing expression grammar library for Ruby. Uh, it does kind of the same thing as RAC, uh, RACC. Huh. I've been using it to build little little silly text generators, like you know, generate a generate a fake movie trailer. In a world where comedy was king, one man must, and you know, just <laughs> randomly rearrange parts of it like Mad Libs. But it's, you know, it's a, it's a parser generator. I've been doing that. I've been working a little bit on game library stuff, not because I think I'll ever have time to build video games for anything like a living or, or very much of my time, but just because uh, a lot of the application model stuff is so different and so fascinating. Games want to use full duplex. They want to do a lot more like broadcast and interesting things where where you use like event-based servers, for instance. You know, I've been doing a lot of mine on Event Machine in Ruby. Right. And, you know, Event Machine, you, you would normally only use it if you had a reason to. So that's that's my current reason to. Well, and uh, I had a kid seven weeks ago now. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Well, thank you. I mean, I have two kids that are older than that, but they're mm-hmm. a lot less work day-to-day than the one who was once. <laughs> Yeah, uh, I, I know how that works. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So when I when I say I'm doing these little things off to the side, and that's my my nine to five job. I understand that taking care of a baby is probably most of my time. That's not my nine to five job right now. Right. But yeah, 
Yeah. And I do a lot of stuff all the rest of the time. I'm teaching myself to draw. You, you asked about some picks, and one of my picks this week would definitely be uh, Aaron Rutten, R-U-T-T-E-N, has a wonderful bunch of beginning drawing tutorials about stuff like how you pick colors and mm-hmm. how you pick the materials. If you're going to do digital digital painting, you know, are the free tools sufficient? Which ones are good? Which ones are bad? Yeah, so the Aaron Rutten art tutorials, if you want to get into drawing, he does a wonderful job of taking something that at first looks utterly mysterious and like you just have to to somehow be inspired to do it and breaking it down into a bunch of little things and then teaching you how to learn each one of the things. I I love watching anybody take something that looks mysterious and break it down into pieces that look like work. Very cool. Yeah. Uh, why, Why don't we go ahead and do the picks? For you, the listeners of Ruby Rogues, Loot Crate is offering an opportunity to save 10% on any new subscription at LootCrate.com. Just enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Loot Crate is one of my favorite things. Every month I get a box in the mail, costs less than $20, and it comes with all kinds of goodies. I have stuff from just looking at my shelf, Batman, Spider-Man, Ninja Turtles, Back to the Future, Lord of the Rings, Star Wars, and much, much more. So if you're a geek, a gamer, anything like that, and you want cool stuff to put around your office, uh, cool t-shirts, comic books, etc., then definitely check out Loot Crate. To save 10% on your new subscription, go to lootcrate.com slash ruby. Again, that's lootcrate.com slash ruby to save 10% on any new subscription. Enter the promo code BRIDGE10 for 10% savings. Sure. Uh, so again, the Aaron Rutten tutorials, uh, you can, you can Google for him. He's big on YouTube. Uh, I will also send you a link to sort of mm-hmm. his main beginner page. So that'd be one of my picks. Uh, I'll go ahead and say parslet, the, the expression grammar thing that I mentioned be another of my picks. That's P A R S L E T parslet. It focuses really heavily on error messages and being able to tell you what went wrong in parsing your grammar, which is by far the hardest part of using any of these uh, little grammar builder packages. And again, I think uh, parsing expression grammars do a better job than the old style uh, Lawler, you know, like Yak and Bison style Mm -hmm. uh, language builders. So I I really like how Parslet does it. I really like the, the, the algorithm that it's an example of. And uh, just because it's uh, just because it's fun, there is a wonderful site called Kitchen Wishes. And if you look up Kitchen Wishes and uh, fondant potatoes, F O N D A N T potatoes mm-hmm. on uh, on YouTube, I don't learn genuinely new ways to cook potatoes very often because I mean it's cooking potatoes. You've right. seen them, but it turns out if you fry them on both sides and then you put them in a pot and you bake it in the pot with stock like chicken mm-hmm. stock or chicken broth, something like that. You get this wonderful thing where it's kind of steamed like a baked potato, but saltier inside, and then it's fried on the top and bottom. So my, my last pick for this week will be uh, the Kitchen Wishes YouTube recipe for fondant potatoes, both because the fondant potatoes are so good, because he does such a good job telling you how to do it. Very nice. Very nice. All right, I'm going to throw out a couple of picks. I, I think this week I'm going to pick some uh, TV shows. Uh, these are shows that I've either been watching or watching with my wife. One of them is a show that uh, just picked, started its second season. Of course, we we watch them on Hulu. Uh, we we cut the cord a few years ago. And so, yeah, we have Hulu and Netflix and Sling, all of which are really great for different things. Um, my kids actually watch a lot of Sling. I should, I should pick that. And uh, one of their primary architects is actually my next door neighbor. But Sling cool. TV, uh, what it is is you essentially get access to live TV over the internet and you can kind of pick and choose your channels 
to some degree. Um, cool. And it's considerably cheaper than your direct TV or dish network. And uh, yeah, so we, we've watched a bunch of shows on there. Um, some history channel shows like hunting Hitler, which was really interesting about how he may have escaped um, and stuff like that. But uh, anyway, so sling TV is definitely a pick. And then we've been watching timeless, which is, I don't, I can never remember which network these shows are on, but uh, timeless. And we've also been watching amazing race. And those are just, kind of interesting shows. Uh, one show that I've started watching, um, and this has been recommended by a whole bunch of different people on the various shows as picks is black mirror. Ah, I hear a lot of good things about it. And yeah, yeah there it's kind of a different show. If you're used to kind of the episodic storytelling, you know, over the course of a season show, that's, that's not the show. This is more sort of like the Twilight Zone or Outer Limits, where each episode is a standalone story that is some form of dystopian future that's related to technology. And so it's been rather interesting to watch and see, oh, yeah, you know, what if we did this? And some of them, you know, it, it's pretty easy to pick it apart and just say, you know what? That would never happen because this, 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 and this. But then if you think about it a little bit longer, then you start thinking, but we could get close because of this, 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 and this. And that's when it really starts to get a little bit chilling. So um, I've I've been enjoying the show as much because it makes me think as because the stories are, are interesting. So cool. Yeah, well, that's that's a lot of the purpose of good science fiction is to find a way to tell human stories about what people want or how they react to a situation. So it yeah. sounds great. Absolutely. Well, Noah, if people want to read your blog posts or see what you're working on, I, I'm assuming you have the blog post, Twitter, GitHub, that kind of a stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, engineering.appfolio.com is where all of the Ruby performance blog posts go up. It's a great place to look at. Uh, I repost the same thing on Twitter. Uh, there's also an Appfolio Engineering Twitter feed, um, but you'll uh, you'll find the same things reposted a number of places. Uh, Ruby Weekly tends to have the tends to have the links when they go up, among other things. You may have seen a few go by. Yeah, but engineering.appfolio.com is a great place to look for them. Uh, my Twitter is codefolio, C-O-D-E-F-O-L-I-O. Uh, turns out for completely unrelated reasons to me working for Appfolio, that was a separate kind of weird coincidence that happened later. Rebuilding Rails can be found at rebuilding-rails.com. There's a you know free chapters and stuff mm-hmm. up there, but again, talk to me. You can find most of the content if you uh, if you don't want to pay me money in blog posts and old stuff all over. I'm, I'm happy to point people at it. Yeah, and so my, my Twitter is a good place to look. And in general, if you want to do Ruby performance stuff, I'll say this is a great time to jump in. The new JIT stuff has just landed in the two six pre release, oh, really? and so if you're looking to do yeah yeah if you're looking to do interesting Ruby performance stuff, right now we're just trying to figure out what the JIT is good enough to help and, and make faster and what it isn't. Like Rails apps don't generally speed up yet. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a wonderful time to be checking that and seeing if your stuff works. It's a wonderful time to maybe get a little bit of a, a speed up if the JIT happens to work for you. And it's also a time when we can really use the feedback. It is a wonderful time to be looking at Ruby performance. And some of the things like the, the MJIT architecture that was built by Vlad Makarov and the uh, the adaptive version that uh, Takashi Kokobun put into the in, into the Ruby interpreter. Like this, there are one Wonderful stories being told here. It's genuinely interesting, and we can really use your help. This is a lovely time to look at Ruby performance stuff if you've been thinking about it. Awesome. Yeah, we just interviewed Takashi Kokobun on Ruby Rogues. 
So uh, that should come out probably a couple weeks before this one does. So, yeah, if you're interested in that, go check that out because he does talk a bit about the JIT and things like that. I will look forward to that. He's good at speaking about it. He also had a wonderful uh, RubyConf presentation on that that is that is worth your time. But I expect the next few will be even better. So we'll see how it goes. Awesome. All right, Noah. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. Uh, thank you for coming. Yeah, very happy to. Thanks for asking. Yeah, we'll catch everyone next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.